I just said to the chief rabbi that this would be the brief suffering or an introduction. All, all the Talmudim know what that means, that inverse proportions. But So let me begin with a tangent. So this is the introduction. The tangent, the tangent is that the first time I met the chief rabbi, I was then in Yeshivat Miftar, and I had come to England for the first time to attend a Limud conference in, in Portsmouth, the second Limud conference. It was so long ago that Dayanin didn't even know it existed. You know, maybe they knew Portsmouth existed, but not the Limud conference. So um, then I spent a few days in, in England, and it was what is called New Year's Day, January 1st. Somebody had said to me from Yeshiva to Miftar that it would be worthwhile to call then Rabbi Sachs up and say, and say that uh, I would like to meet him and speak with him and uh, discuss how we would take over the world, which is exactly what I said. And, and the chief rabbi was very kind, and I came and we spoke for a couple of hours. And then I asked you, where could I find a double-decker bus to do the American thing? And you told me how to go downtown. And indeed, I saw many buildings that Christopher Wren had built. Um, <clears throat> At that time, though, as a result of that, that uh, wonderful discussion, I said, I, I have serious doubts whether I'm going to take over the world, but I think that Rabbi Sachs will. And indeed, as, as we can see on the table, there are many comp- copies of Covenant and Conversation and other works that have really taken over the world. And Baruch Hashem, the chief rabbi, is, uh, is a voice... And, the, and, and a very, very significant and perhaps uh, singular voice uh, in, in a world of specialists without spirit. It is, a, it is a fresh voice of reason and dignity. Now to the introduction. Chief Rabbi, the, the rule in of my introductions is that they are, the length of the introduction is inversely proportional to what you think the speaker has to say, in which case... I give you the chief rabbi. Rabosai Kvadarav Kvadarabanim. Um, I haven't forgotten, and when you've next got a free day in your diary, we'll take over the world together, (laughs) strictly together, and all of you are invited to be partners in that occasion. Um, Sorry, Aviad, how long do I speak for? Thank you, but could you please now answer the question? Half an hour, 20 minutes? Half an hour. Uh, I, w- I was asked to say a few words about the Rambam. It's impossible to say a few words about the Rambam, so let us begin at a strange place. And here it is. How many Ikarim are there? How many principles of Jewish faith? Right? We're all agreed? Wrong. So, let me now explain why. And I, you'll forgive me. I, I just did this a little bit uh, on on the, on on the, uh, at a run. 
However, if you look at the Rambam's three great Sfarim, the Sefer Mitzvot, the Mishnah Torah, and the Morah HaNavuchim, if you look at the Sefer Mitzvot, the Rambam not merely counts the Tariag Mitzvahs, but being the most systematic, methodological, and lucid exponent of Jewish law, he not merely gives you the 613 mitzvahs, but he gives you at the beginning a set of principles to apply to tell you whether this is a mitzvah or it isn't. Is it one mitzvah? Is it several? Is it uh, mitzvah, which is a klal rather than a specific imperative? Is this a command? Is it a promise? How many klalim does he bring at the beginning of Sefer Mitzvot? Fourteen. How many books does he divide the Mishnah Torah into? What is it known as? Yad Echazakah, because there are fourteen books. In the Morah Hanavuchim, he divides the mitzvahs into a number of groups, depending here, not on their legal structure, but on their general tachlit, on their purpose. How many types of mitzvahs does he enumerate? Fourteen. In his first book, Milota Igayon, he defines fourteen principles, and the Rambam was born on 14th of Nisan. So, when the Rambam does something, he does it in fourteens, not in thirteen. So it turns out, although, uh, I mean, la dati, I don't know if anyone said this, so I say it with real hesitation, but it turns out that we would expect there to be 14 ikare emuna and not 13. The 13, you know, we sing them every day in Yigdal or whatever. So what is the 14th principle? And how do we know it is actually a principle, a yisod, everything that an ikka is? You'll find it. Oh, sorry, have you got? Where have you got it down here? Yeah. Uh, the last on that first page. Can you read? Can you see this? Here it is. The Rambam Hilchus Shuvah Perikei Alach and Gimel, where he's talking about bechira. It's very interesting. I, I will explain to you in a moment, but the logistics of Hilchot Tshuva are very interesting. In, in Perik Dalad of Hilchot Tshuva, he talks about the Chof Dalad Devarim Tshuva. He talks about 24 things that inhibit or sometimes prevent, psychologically prevent us doing Tshuva. Tshuva is not that simple. And then immediately thereafter, he turns to the subject of Bechira. And at Nira Lafi Aniuddati, it seems to me that what the Rambam is saying is that there are 24 specific things that can inhibit your doing tshuva. But over and above those 24 specific things, there is a cloud that stops you doing tshuva, and that is the belief I cannot change. I am who I am, I am what I am, I am the result of my parents, my genetic heritage, my socioeconomic class, my cultural environment, I am what I am. And that is the clue, 
as opposed to the pratim that inhibits tshuva. As uh, they always used to say, how many psychotherapists does it take to change a light bulb? One, but first the light bulb has to want to change. So, if you don't want to change, you cannot do tshuva because it doesn't even enter your mind. So with Perek Hei, he moves into the subject of Bechira and insists, we have Bechira. And then in Halacha Gimel he says, This is a fundamental principle. It is absolutely fundamental. It's a pillar on which the Torah and the mitzvot rest. Right? I've set before you life and death, therefore choose life. Moshe Rabbeinu at the end of his life is saying, Hebra, choose which derech are you going to take as individuals? Which path are you going to follow as a nation? Will you choose life? Will you choose death? Will you choose the God of life or lifeless things, consumer things, iPads, iPhones, you know, the whole world, <coughs> as they call it instruments of mass consumption nowadays. And which are you going to choose? Kalomashero should be Elechem. The, the ability is in, in your hand. Whatever you really set yourself to do that is within human scope, you can do. Whether they're good or they're bad, that choice is all. At the moment when HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave Torah at HaSinai, they were so full of Yeras Hashem, they told Moshe Rabbeinu, do us a favor, please, you go and listen to the rest. We, we, we are bursting with this sense of the immensity of God. And God says, that they were always so full of Yerashamayim. But if they were always so full of Yerashamayim, because there I am uh, filling their minds, then I take away their freedom. So Kodesh Baruch says, Oh, I, I so wish, but there's certain things I cannot do. I cannot be so present in the minds of people against their will that they have no freedom at all. So it's as if Kodesh Baruch laments that Sim Tzum that he impose, has to impose on himself in order to create space for human freedom. It's a very powerful thing. And then he says, If God were able to decree of any of us that we be righteous, or God forbid that we be wicked, or there was if we were, uh, I think they call this now genetically hardwired to do only the good or to do only the bad, then, or to some uh, uh, certain, if we were forced, you know, by genetically to particular. Uh, opinions, or the de'am in ha'deot, in the Rambam's terminology, that means 
have this character or that character, these virtues or these vices, as people, as astrologers think, you know, you read your your fate in the stars, as I say, nowadays they read it in your DNA, in your genome, and they think, you know, that that decrees exactly what you're going to be, then... um, you know, if we, if we were going to do only the right, or we were going to do only the wrong, what point is it, Tani Moshe Rabbeinu, to give us a mitzvah? Do this, don't do that. We would have done it, even if he hadn't told us. The whole concept of a mitzvah would be inconceivable. You wouldn't be looking to tell a person how to behave, because they're going to behave that way anyway. So if you deny free will, you deny the whole logic of mitzvot. And not only that, um, and then the Rambam makes the second point. If somebody could not help what they did, how can they be punished for what they did? If somebody couldn't help it, then they require not punishment, but treatment. And if I couldn't help but be a tzaddik, so why should I be rewarded? So the whole of reward and punishment and divine justice, the whole of command and prohibition, the whole world of mitzvot, if you deny free will, the whole of Judaism collapses. So you see the Rambam in this passage is telling you Bechira is one of the ikarei emunah. It is the 14th principle of faith. So how come people think there are only 13 principles of faith? And the answer is very simple. The Rambam mentions these 13 principles for the first time in, in uh, his Pirisha Mishnayis to Perit Chelek, where the Mishnah says, Kol Yisrael yesh lahem chelek lolam We all have a share in the world to come. The Rambam says something beautiful in these at the end of uh, Marcus, you know, uh, the Rambam says, if you even if you only did one mitzvah in your whole lifetime, you did it out of love, you have the world to come. So Hashem wants us to have the world to come, but there are certain things which deprive of us a chance of the world to come. The Mishnah mentions and in analyzing that, the Rambam sets out his 13 principles. In other words, of the 14 principles of faith, 13 of them, according to the Rambam, if you deny them, you lose your share in the world to come. Why? Because those 13 principles are all about our faith in HaKadosh Baruch What is the 14th principle? The 14th principle is about HaKadosh Baruch faith in us. He had faith in us, so he gave us freedom. So if we deny that principle, well, we're not going to do tshuva, but... But we're not going to lose our share in the world to come because we still believe in God. We just don't believe that He believes in us. Are you with me? 
So we have 13 principles which have to do with Hashem, and one to do with us. 13 principles, denial of which causes you to lose Chele Gelelam and the 14th which doesn't, but does prevent you growing as a human being. I, I think it's important because I didn't see this anywhere. Maybe, is, it, is it there? I didn't see it anywhere. So it's really Yisudi. This is really, really Yisudi. Free will is one of the 14 Ikara Emuna. And, and we made a mistake from, for 800 years thinking there were only 13 because we failed to notice that the Rambam actually. And incidentally, now. Sorry. I'm sorry, this beautiful English weather that you provided to make us feel at home uh, is also giving me a cold, so you'll forgive me if I have a cup of coffee. <coughs> Incidentally, I, I just want to share something with you, which is also your sodia. I tried to show this to my rabbi, the BBC got me to... Uh, each year I make a television program for the BBC. Uh, around just before Rosh Hashanah. And, you know, it's a very interesting thing. Jews in Anglo-Jury, we are less than one half of the population of the country. But uh, they, they, they came, when I became chief rabbi, they said, would you like to give a message to the nation? This is not a message to the Jewish community. It's a message to the nation. So each year I try and find something to do with Rosh Hashanah that <laughs> speaks to Goyim. So, I mean... A year ago, in 2009, 2008, and 2009, I mean, it was easy because we had that big um, financial collapse, you remember, and the whole question of the ethics of financial trading, securitization, uh, subprime mortgages, all this stuff. Uh, so you give a, 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 do a television program on Jewish business ethics, uh, it, it kind of speaks to everyone. But this year, because I don't know if you've come across this, uh, you probably here, sitting here in this Kedusha, you didn't hear about this, but there are some people out there at the moment who are um, becoming uh, evangelical atheists. Have you come across with people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchie? You've heard of these people. Uh, so we've got, we've got this new phenomenon, evangelical atheism. And so... Uh, and they get all the attention. They get all the television programs. So, uh, so uh, they said to me, you know, they said we've been looking in our schedules and we've given all the atheists their airtime. Would you like to do the case for God? That's nice, you know. When a, when a Christian nation asks a rod to do the, they hadn't asked any of the Christian guys. So, you know, so I thought, fine. So this year for my television program, I invited four atheists to have a dialogue with me. And it was very interesting. Three of the atheists, you can predict, three of them were Jewish. But we had to have a token Gentile atheist. You know, we are Marmini, B'nai Marmini, but we do atheists also pretty well. So, uh, um, and they got an Oxford neuroscientist. His name is Colin Blakemore. He's the leading neuroscientist in Britain. And he, Mamash, is a determinist. You know, because he doesn't believe in Hashem, because he doesn't believe in the Neshama, because he doesn't believe in anything non-physical about the human person. He believes every event, every human action is caused by a combination of our genetic heritage and our particular 
physical, spatio-temporal <coughs> circumstances. So every single thing we do is predetermined. Now, look, I said to him on the television, you can't possibly actually believe this. He said, yeah, I really believe it. You really had no choice whether you were going to come on the program with me? You had no choice whether you were going to win or lose the... No, he just had no choice. So the question is, how do you actually prove that we have free will? Are you with me? And it seems to me, nira lafi aniyutati, that the Rambam believed, and I think it still is, the best proof for the existence of free will. If an event is totally caused by physical laws and the starting conditions, then it follows if you replicate the starting conditions and the same laws are operative, you know, you do experiments and you've got exactly the, you know, the temperature and the whatever it is, and, and so and you do it once, and a certain thing happens, you do it a second time, the same thing happens. It all, it keeps on happening. And when you ever see that, when you see the same laws and the same starting conditions, you see the same outcome, then you know the stone or the apple is not free to choose not to fall. Are you with me? So how can we prove that unlike physical objects, human beings have Bukhira? And I think the Rambam makes this leap. It is such a great leap, but it's so simple. What is the definition of Tshuva Gemurah? Does anyone know? Yeah? If you, uh, <coughs> if you sit in one sin, if you're found in the same position and you don't sin uh, Yeah. Exactly. That's the definition of Chuvagamura. You're in exactly the same circumstances as you were in the past, but that time you sinned, and this time you don't sin. That is a knockdown empirical proof that we are not fully determined by the circumstances in which we find ourselves. So the Rambam's proof that Yesh Bechira is Chuvagamura. And that is why he writes the 14th. Yisod, here in Hilchas Tshuva rather than in Hilchas Yisod Atara or any of the other places where he might have put this Yisod. Or in chapter 3 where he deals with the, the other 13 principles. So, we have here now the Rambam. Now, now it gets a tiny bit complicated. Because not only are there, are there, are there um, scientific challenges to Bechira, but there are also religious challenges to Bukhira. The first and greatest of them is divine foreknowledge. If Mabitlasof Davabakadmuto, if God is Magid Mereshis Acharis, if Hashem knows exactly what's going to happen, how can anyone be free to do otherwise than what God has? foreknown will happen. Are you with me? So if you look at the first of the sources, it's the obvious first problem. Hashem knew 400 years in advance that the Israel would go to Mitzrayim and the Mitzrayim would be uh, enslaved, afflict them and enslave them and they would be punished for it. So how are they free not to? 
right? So that is that is the whole problem of divine foreknowledge. And then there's even a second problem, which is uh, which is you know who's really acting here? Is it us or is it Hashem? You know, if Hashem knows exactly what we're going to do and He allows it to happen, is it we who are acting or is He <coughs> pulling the strings and we're just the puppets? And that is the issue raised by Yosef's response to his brothers. Can you see in the next source? You know, when He tells them not to be upset. Don't think I'm upset that you sold me into slavery and you shouldn't be upset. Vata al te'atzvu don't be uh, upset that you sold me here as, into uh, slavery. It was actually God who was doing this, sending me ahead of you to provide for your food. And if you look at right, and if you look at verse Ches, Vata Lo God did this. It wasn't you. So we have the problem of what is divine action, and we have in particular the problem of divine foreknowledge. And this is a, an apparent stirah, not between religion and science, but within religion itself. Famously, there were two medieval Jewish philosophers um, who, who, who took opposing views on this, because it seems that divine foreknowledge and human free will are incompatible. The Rambam held that Rabbi Akiva stated this in the form of a paradox. Hakol Safui Urashut Natuna. Everything is foreseen, says Rabbi Akiva, and yet freedom of choice is given. That is how the Rambam in his Pirisha Mishnah understands. Rabbi Kiva, if you've read uh, Rabbi Fry, do you, do, you, do, do you allow that book in here, Fry Morbach's the, the Chazal? I, I don't know, is that in here? I think we have it. Yeah, I think it's in there. Yeah. It's in there. It's in the Sifriya. Yeah. So, uh, you know, Fry Morbach says that in Mishnaic Hebrew, Tzafui means seen, not foreseen. Yeah? In later Hebrew, Tzafui means. Uh, mirosh, but in 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 Mishnah Hebrew it only means seen rather than forcing. So, but uh, that, but the Rambam clearly reads uh, it, it that way. So there we have the promise. So um, <coughs> you can do one of two things if you believe it's an either or. You can either say we really have free will and therefore. Hashem does not fully know everything in advance or Hashem really does follow, fully know everything in advance but we don't really have free will the person who took the first route was the Ralbach Gersonides Levi Ibn Gershom who, who held that Hashem knows everything in advance that we would today call scientifically predictable but there, are, there is an area of free human choice which, because it is not determined, even Hashem doesn't know in advance, not that that is a limitation on Hashem, but it is logically impossible to know the 
in what in technical terms is called the contingent. <coughs> the contingent, God doesn't know in advance, and that's, that's a logical fact. So that's the Ralbag who, as it were, limits God's foreknowledge, and Chastikreskis uh, limits human free will. God really does know everything in advance, and uh, our scope of freedom is limited. Those, those were the two extremes. But the Rambam in the middle um, says both are true. Both are true. And I wonder if... Uh, let's, just, let's just confine ourselves to, to one little detail. Um, have you got here the, the third source where it says, Halofa hey? Yeah? Shema Toma. Perhaps you will say... God knows in advance what's going to happen before it happens. You know, if God knows we're going to be righteous, then it's impossible for us not to be righteous. And if God knows that we're going to be righteous, but actually maybe we won't be righteous, then he can't be fully said to know that we're going to be righteous. So how do I combine divine foreknowledge with human freedom? The Ramam says, The answer to this is really difficult. It's wider than the earth and deeper than the sea. It's really tough. Believe me, it is really tough. However, you've got to know what I'm going to tell you here, even though it's going to be very simple. God and his knowledge are one, whereas for us, we and our knowledge are two different things. But God and his knowledge are one, and we cannot fully understand this because it isn't true for us. Just as we can't really know what God is, no one can see me and live, etc. Et really, we cannot really fully understand this. Um, uh, Sorry, where, where was I up to? My ways are not your ways, etc., etc. We can't know how God knows in advance what we're going to do, but the fact that he does know in advance does not force us to act. Otherwise, 
And don't just think I'm telling you to believe this is a matter of religious faith, because even the philosophers who are not religious, I mean Aristotle, fully understood this. That's what he is saying. The whole of the prophetic literature, the whole of Judaism is based on the fact that we have free will. Now the Ravid really, really does not like this at all. He says... The Ravid says, The Rambam really has not behaved as a wise person should. Don't begin something that you don't know how to end. Are you with me? If he doesn't know how to explain it to us, don't tell us about it at all. He begins with all sorts of problems and questions. And he says, well, it's difficult. And then he leaves it to our Right? And you should never have raised the question in the first place, because unless you can give a straightforward answer, you will leave people with doubts, and who knows, maybe that might undermine their faith. And then, I mean, to save the Rivet's embarrassment here, I haven't printed out the rest of the Rivet, but it's actually a very amusing Rivet, because the Rivet says, well, I'm going to give you an explanation, and he then gives an explanation, and then he ends with the words, V'cholze enoshava, and I... I don't actually think this is right. You know, I, I would have said to the rivet, rivet, if you don't know how to finish something, don't begin it. <laughs> so, Bimchilis Kavod Haravad, the rivet di- really didn't understand the Rambam, because the rivet was not philosophically trained the way the Rambam was. Now, the Rambam here quite clearly says we cannot understand this. And Taminli, it's a very, very deep thing. But, you know, it stayed with me. The Rambam must have explained this somehow because he's so clear about this. He does explain it. Now, I'm sorry, because I'm going to take a risk here of explaining it to you. But um, it is unsettling. It's unsettling, okay? But here it is. The Rambam in the Mora Hanavuchim, Chelegimol, Perek You have it? What? It's the last one. It's the la- one? Last source. Do you have it? Yeah. He says something very interesting here. I don't know which translation this is. It's on the Baralam database, so I don't know which one it is. Hefresh Gadol Yesh Ben Yediat Haoser Bamashe Asav Yediat Zulato Baasui Hahu. There is a great difference between the knowledge of something that the creator of that thing has from somebody who's not the creator of that thing. Okay? So let's suppose that you are Steve Jobs. And you suddenly had the idea for the iPhone. Right? So you got it all in here. And then you work it out, and you work it out, and you work it out, and you get your team of engineers and so on, and eventually it appears. But you, know, you knew from the very beginning, from the inside, 
what the final thing was going to be like and what it was going to do. You had it in here. You knew it from the inside. But somebody, you know, I don't know, somebody who's been away from civilization, I mean, you know, uh, somewhere in some foreign corner of England somewhere, you know, looking after the sheep on the Yorkshire moors and comes to town for the first time in ten years and sees this iPhone, you know. And it's mind-blowing. saying, what is this bloody thing here? You know, what is it? He tries to open it and this and that. And eventually you show him what it is and slowly, slowly, slowly he begins to understand what this incredible thing is. Do you understand? He's understanding it from the outside. Yeah? And so, you know, gradually he's got to work out what, what all this stuff is, and it takes him a long time, and maybe he never fully understands. And certainly his understanding of it only comes when you show him the thing. Whereas the person who created it in the first place knows it from the inside. Now, this distinction is tremendously important when it comes to free will. You see, all of us have a first-person perspective and a third-person perspective. Supposing I know exactly what somebody else is going to do. Yeah? It shows that they haven't exercised their freedom a great deal, you know? Every time I smile at them, they lose their temper with me. Well, that lunch over, you know, if they're that predictable. But I know from the outside what they're going to do. To that extent, they're predictable. But supposing you know from the inside that tomorrow you're going to pay a visit to somebody who's not been very well. You know? Does that mean that because you know what you're going to do tomorrow, you don't have Bukhira? On the contrary. The fact that you know what you're going to do tomorrow is because of your Bukhira. And I just want to give you two English words that mark that difference. When I'm telling what somebody else is going to do, I am predicting. But when I know what I'm going to do, I am deciding. So prediction has a tension with, it, with Bechira. But deciding is an expression of Bechira. Yeah? And that's the difference between a first-person perspective, my perspective on my own feelings, motives, intentions, and the way I judge somebody else, minha chutz. What the Rambam is saying, you know, which the Rabbi couldn't fully understand because it's a very deep philosophical point. I only ever saw this point made in the late 20th century in secular philosophy. I'd said uh, there was a professor of philosophy in, in London University called David Wiggins who wrote an article predicting and deciding. And I suddenly said to myself, this non-Jew never heard of the Rambam, he suddenly explained the Rambam to me. What he is saying is because Hashem created us, every one of us, he knows us from the inside, not from the outside. If he knew us from the outside, there'd be a conflict between his knowing what we're going to do and our freedom not to do it. But because he knows us from the inside, the way we know ourselves, that knowledge is the knowledge of my free will. 
the Rambam is saying something really remarkable. That a Kodesh Baruch Hu is more distant than the furthest star, 13.7 billion light years away, is closer to me than I am to myself. So, um, you know, uh, I, 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 uh, <laughs> oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> There's a line in the David Yeah? That struck me very forcefully. It says, Lacha Amali Bi Bakshupanai. My heart said, Seek my face. Whose face? Hakarish Borahu's face. But my heart said that. David Amalek is saying in this psalm, there are times when Hashem speaks with my voice. My voice, God speaking through me, is telling me, see God's face. Are you with me? It's a very difficult pasuk to read any other way. Conscience is the voice of God inside here. You know, there's schava onesh, you worry that you're going to be punished or you hope you're going to be rewarded. That's a voice from the outside. But the internalized voice, that's the voice of God within me. And that is what the Gemara means in Kedushin, when, you know, Rav Shemachal Akvodu Kvodu Machal Alo, and, you know, the initial <coughs> sentence is, is no, Rav, uh, and then Hada, Rav changed his mind and said yes, because of uh, Psalm 1, what does it say? Ki im b'torat Hashem chefzo, Uvatorato Yege Yamamvalai. Gemara says, what is it? Chaf Chaf Chesam Basin Kedushin. I I I can't remember exactly, but it's around there. Gemara said, Rabbi says there. You see, at the beginning it's called Torah Hashem. At the end it's called Torato. When you start learning Torah, it's like something on the outside. Torah Hashem. I'm me. There's Hashem. That's Torah Hashem. But when I've really learned, and that learning has changed to who I am, it's Torah. It's my Torah. It's Hashem's words within me. That's what Chazal mean when they say Al Tikra Charut Al Haluchot Ela Cherut Al Haluchot. When God's words are engraved on my heart, then I'm free because there's no tension between my will and Hashem's will. Hashem's will has become my will. So I just wanted you to see, I'm sorry I've done my 45 minutes already. I just wanted you to see there are many issues of the Rambam's treatment of Bukhira and I've just taken one of them. An issue where the Rambam seems to be saying in the Murag, guys, look, 
take this on faith, take it on trust, I know what I'm talking about, even if you don't, situation we often find ourselves in, and, uh, and uh, take it on trust, and the rivet says, well, if you have to take it on trust, don't raise the question in the first place. That's a very superficial reading of the Rambam. The Rambam is actually saying something incredibly, incredibly deep. That if God were outside of us and he knows what we're going to do, if you were making a prediction, that would be challenging my freedom. But God doesn't know us from the outside. God knows us from the inside. Why? Because the creator of something knows that thing from within. And he created us. So he knows us from within. And because of that, his knowledge of what we're going to do is no contradiction to our freedom. It is part of our freedom. Because every time we are tempted to lose our freedom because we go with the flow, culturally, economically, sociologically, genetically. Every time we're tempted to go with the flow, there's the voice of God within us saying, you can be free of that. Lech lecha, me'artzecha, I once said Judaism produced three great abikosim, Spinoza, Marx, and Freud. Marx said we're all determined by ownership of primary resources. It's a conflict of classes between the landowners and the non-landowners or the owners of the methods of production. And not that. We're determined by Arzacha. So that HaKadosh Baruch says, Abandon Marx, Lech Lecha Spinoza was one of the first determinists and nowadays, Spinoza would be that Oxford brain scientist who says, we're already determined by the genome. We're, you know, already when we're a blastocyst, a few cells, not even an embryo yet, already our future is written there. Get you out of circumstances of your birth. And Freud, who said we're determined by our relationship with our father, the Oedipus complex, you can get away from Marx, Freud, Spinoza, and every determinism you like because I, Hashem, am within you giving you the strength to resist I hope I've shown you A, that the Rambam holds that Bechira is indeed the 14th principle of faith and it really is because without it Judaism wouldn't make sense B, that divine foreknowledge because of his incredibly profound insight into the difference between the way God knows something and the way we do, which is the difference between the way a creator knows something and the way somebody who happens upon it from the outside knows, and how it is that voice of God within us that allows us to be free and rise above our environment and what otherwise might be our limitations. May Hashem give us the strength to hear His voice, to feel His strength, to lift ourselves, to demonstrate our freedom, and thereby become... God's ambassadors to this world proof that we are made in his image and just as he is free so are we thank you
token appreciation for coming to our uh, book on, on Reformation. I'm sure God will enjoy it. Um, we have uh, uh, just a few minutes for questions. So, so if you want to ask questions? Rafi? Uh, yeah. Uh, can you speak very loudly because I've got a bit of an infection in my... Today, when when someone um, when a, when a family member is um, taught, when a family member marries out or in some other way leaves the fold of religious Judaism, <laughs> the communal pressure is a lot of the time to fully reject them. And I, I guess I was wondering what your approach to such a situation would be. Well, you know, uh, somebody asked uh, Ralph Cook, <coughs> you know, from a guy whose son had gone out into what they called Talbudra, who abandoned Judaism, what should he do? And Ralph Cook said, before your son abandoned Judaism, did you love him? And the man replied, of course I loved him. So Ralph Cook said, in that case, love him more. Now, I think that's a very powerful, very powerful statement. It was somewhere in this part of town that one day, when Rav Cook was Rav Arashi of pre-state Israel, that when there was tremendous pressure on building, I don't know what the pressure was, there was some deadline. And for some reason, um, for some reason, there was, the, 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 there was pressure, uh, the, a building contractor forced his workers to build on Rosh Hashanah. I, 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 it was you know, in the early 1930s, I don't know exactly the story. So uh, somebody heard this and ran to Rav Cook to say that there's, there's some workmen building on Rosh Hashanah. You know, go and send somebody to stop them. And you know what Ralph Cook did? He sent somebody. And he sent somebody with a chauffeur, and he told them, go blow chauffeur for them. They're working on Rosh Hashanah, they're not in shul, they won't be a chauffeur. Blow chauffeur for them. So the guy comes up to the builders, and he doesn't tell them off, he just blows chauffeur for them. For a moment, while the chauffeur's being blown, it's complete <coughs> And la'at, la'at, it dawns on them that the Rav has been sending them a message of love, not of rejection. And of their own accord, they put down their tools and they follow the Baltikia and they shoot. Now that is one derech in Avodah Hashem. Not everyone takes that derech and it needs a certain amount of courage and generosity of spirit. And if somebody took another derech, I don't think we would stand up and condemn them. But that's the derech that I learned from Rav Cook, I learned from Myra Bain. I had the great zuchut of meeting great, great, great Jews who reached out to people in love. And a Kodesh Baruch Hu is Yisrael and he doesn't reject us. So, um, <coughs> one way or other, you have to leave the door open.
and that's the best answer I can give you. Yeah. Sorry, you want to. Oh, yeah, this is uh, about your, the topic about free will. You, you put, you broke it into deciding versus predicting, yeah. as, you know, inside versus outside. And then it sounded like God was from the inside, yeah. which seems to put him in the deciding category. What? God is, is not deciding for us. With us? But is deciding, you know, is, is, is with us as we decide. Yeah? And you can see that immediately in chapter 4 of Sefer Bereshit. You know, there's Cain and there's Havel. And, and Cain hasn't said anything yet. But Hashem can feel his, fear, his animosity towards Havel. And he says, Lama etc., etc. You read that chapter, it's clear that Hashem is inside Cain's mind reading his thoughts. Yeah? So he doesn't <coughs> stop Cain, because if he could have stopped Cain, he would have stopped Cain. But he's there. He's the internal observer of our thoughts. And it is the strange power of the mind that the mind is both subject and object, both I and me. I observe myself as I'm making those decisions. And that is the complexity of the human mind. It's called reflexivity, or, you know, put it simply, self-consciousness. And that is the point that the Rambam is making, that Hashem can observe us making the decision from the inside, um, which is not wholly unintelligible to us, because we can also sometimes observe ourselves making the decision. Yeah, sorry. Can I just uh, say that um, I think we have one more question, and I would like to to be the one asking that question. Ah. Okay. Um, our our is, is uh, I would say, uh, very proud of uh, our ideology, of uh, our beliefs in modern orthodoxy. And uh, I would like to ask the chief rabbi, um, what is your opinion about uh, the future of modern orthodoxy? I know we don't have the whole day, but I um, wonder if you can uh, tell us what you think is the future, uh, what, what, what is the future of modern orthodoxy? Look, I mean, what's in a name arose by any other name, etc., etc. But um, the truth is, I don't really use the word modern orthodoxy. It's a label that gets stuck on me very often, but I don't stick it on myself. Um, And the reason I don't is, if you take an American context, for instance, um, if you are modern orthodox, you define yourself as a minority of a minority of a minority. In America, Jews are a minority. Among Jews, Orthodox Jews are a minority. And amongst Orthodox Jews, modern Orthodox today are a minority. Now, I just told you, I don't behave that way. I, I don't say to the BBC, do me a favor, go away. I've got nothing to say to you because I'm only a minority of a minority of a minority. How do I define myself? I am the heir to the two great heritages. One, the universal human heritage called Chochmah, and two, the specific Jewish heritage called Torah. 
And Torah is relevant not only to Jews who happen to represent in total one-fifth of one percent of the population of the world, but the two other Abrahamic monotheisms took the, whatever they took from us, so the Judaism is not Christianity or Islam, but there couldn't have been a Christianity or Islam without a Judaism, and there are 1.3 billion Muslims and there are 2.2 billion Christians, which means more than half of the 6 billion people on the face of the earth. So I'm a minority... I am heir to the whole world's wisdom and to the original religious inspiration that inspired one half of the world today. So I don't think of myself as modern orthodox, this little sect who have a few little yeshivas here. Or a bunch of, oh, I'm sorry, I've just come from Ben-Gurion University. They were very sweet, you know, would you accept an award and this, that, and the other. Why? They're not modern orthodox. But they want to learn. They want to know. Tell us something. And that's what the Times says, and that's what the BBC says. Why define yourself as a tiny little thing whose future, Aviad, of all people, is worried about? Kivolt, you know, Chachmah is as old as humanity, Torah is as old as Avram Avinu. We've been around a long time, and sometimes there weren't very many of us. The sum total population of the Jewish world in the beginning of the 18th century was 2 million, for heaven's sake. I mean, as somebody said, less than the statistical error in the Chinese census. You blink and you miss it. <laughs> So long as the word of Hashem speaks to us, speaks to us as individuals in love and forgiveness, then he speaks in the same voice as he spoke to Avram Avinu. And believe me, Taminli, that I can say that to a Christian or a Muslim and they know what I'm talking about. And I can also say, I just came back three months ago from giving a... Uh, seminar on happiness with the Dalai Lama, Emory University. Not a lot of Jews in Atlanta, a few, but 7,000 people came along to the lecture. Why? Because that wasn't Torah, that was Chokhmah. And they wanted to hear it from Balei Chokhmah, from the different traditions. Don't see yourself as small. Taminli, we are nothing. <coughs> Individually, we're tiny, but collectively, we're vast. Without us, there wouldn't be a West. There wouldn't be Western civilization. There wouldn't be the supremacy of right over might. There would not be a free society. Peace would not be seen as an ideal without Yeshayahu and Micha and Avinim. So I don't see modern orthodoxy as a helpful category. We are B'nai Torah who <coughs> see it as our task to apply Torah to the world. And in order to apply Torah to the world, we have to understand the world, and understanding the world is called Chokmah. Yeah? There are two things. This Torah is the Word of God, and the universe, which is the work of God. And Marabu Masecho Hashem Kulam B'Chokmah Asita. The second I define myself as the dual heir, to Torah and Chokmah, then I have no doubt as to its viability. Ledorot. How many people did the Rambam write the Mora Hanavuchim for? One! One Talmud he wrote it for. And you know what? 
when the Talmud read it, he didn't like it very much. He said, you know, I don't know exactly what he said, but if I was perplexed before I read it, I'm even more perplexed <laughs> now I've read it, etc., etc. And yet that thing written for one Talmud is an enduring, the enduring masterpiece of Jewish philosophy, which will be read forever, as long as people still search for God and truth and wisdom. So, you know, in Judaism, we don't count Jews. We say every Jew is in universe. You know, Aviad, I told you this already. Kisisa, kitisai rosh b'nei Yisrael ifkudahem, what negev is there when you count Jews? What is the danger? The danger is that we will think like everyone else, that there is strength in numbers. The second, the Jewish people think there's strength in numbers, we're finished. We're finished. Every other nation is bigger than we are. So we must be, Atem HaMahad Mikol HaMim, said Moshe Rabbeinu. But Moshe Rabbeinu said, "Lo berubachem chachak Hashem uvachabachem." He atem hamah. Wasn't because there were a whole bunch of you. It's because one of you is ka'olam Never ever have any doubts about the future of this derech. If even if there were only one last one left alive, the whole world would need that one. So leave all these cheshbonas to a kadosh baruch as Isaiah said to Hezekiah, etc., etc. You leave all these demographic cheshbonot to the Almighty and statistical units in the demographic department of the Hebrew University, you leave that to them. And the meanwhile, you just know that so long as the voice of Hashem is within you and so long as you represent His truth with integrity and love, you will have a future and everyone you teach will have a future. Thank you.